0: Welcome to the Bayview Glen Church live stream and welcome to our final installment in this series called Foundations. In this series, what we've endeavored to do is see the life and work and ministry of Jesus through the eyes of the Old Testament. Why? Because Jesus saw himself through the eyes of the Old Testament as did the authors of the New Testament. So what we've said and, and, and hopefully demonstrated is that we can't get a fully orbed picture of Jesus. We can't get a multicolored picture of Jesus. We can't get an entire and full picture of Jesus until and unless we understand the ways in which the Old Testament informs his story because Jesus didn't just enter history in a vacuum, right? He didn't just kind of pop on the timeline of history and say, here I am, rather, He was a continuation of the Old Testament story. What we've said is simply this. In order to know who you are, you have to know where you came from. And that's true with Jesus. In order to know who he is, and not just know mentally, but know experientially. In order to love him, serve him, follow him, in order to know him, you have to know where he came from. Same thing goes with, with you and me. And so in large part, this is not just Jesus' story, but it's our story as a church. And it didn't begin 100 years ago or 500 years ago with the Reformation or you know, 1,500 years ago with Augustine or 2,000 years ago with Jesus. It began generations before that. And so what I wanna do today is talk about two things. One is I wanna do a little bit of of a review. It's just a nickel and dime tour of kind of where we've come from what we've established about God, what we've established about his story and the people that he worked through and what that's taught us about Jesus. I'm not gonna go through the whole thing. Uh, For some of you though, this will be review. For some, I'm gonna fill in some gaps in sermons that you've missed. And for some, I'm just catching you up to speed on where we're at because this is your first week with us. If that's so, welcome. The second thing we're gonna do is talk about this final covenant that God makes with his people. It's called the Davidic covenant. We'll get there in a moment and talk about the ways in which that informs our understanding of Jesus. Before we do that, I would invite you to pray with me. Heavenly Father, I'm gonna talk for the next 25 minutes and I pray that you would give me a clarity of thought Clarity in my words, that I would say only things that are from you and that they would impact and shape and transform the hearts of those who hear. To the best of our ability, O oh God, we come before you with humble hearts, asking that you would lead us, shape us, mold us, inspire us, and as I've prayed before, that you would stir up our affections for Jesus, that we would love and serve him more. It's in His name that we pray. Amen. Well, the story of God begins with God hovering over the surface of the deep, in the beginning, creation. And God spoke His creation into existence. So here's where we began our story and foundations, with God as creator. God created all that we can see and all that we can't see. The sun, the moon, the stars, the cosmos, the universe, and galaxies beyond galaxies beyond galaxies, some of which we haven't even discovered yet. You know, He created plants and animals and fish in the sea and birds in the air, and the crown jewel of his creation was humankind, and yet humankind rebelled against God. We went our own way and thus incurred upon ourselves the consequences of our rebellion, and that was death. So theoretically, let me just show you here, actually. Theoretically, the Bible could have ended about right there. (laughs) All the rest of this stuff we didn't have to have. But God, in his grace, began to make covenants with his people. His very first covenant was with Adam, the rebeller, the first rebeller. And God said to Adam, I'm not going to let you sit in your rebellion. Rather, I'm going to provide a way for you. Theologians call this the proto-evangelum. It's the kind of first hints of the good news of a redeemer that is to come. And God makes a promise to Adam, a covenant, the Adamic covenant, and promises a redeemer that is to come. Now, Adam and Eve and their sons and daughters began to populate the earth and people grew and populations grew and humankind grew. And there's a point at which God observes that every inclination of the human heart was always wicked all the time. Now, I don't know about you, but we try to avoid words like every, all, never, none, that kind of stuff in my house. But the reality is at that moment in human history, those words are applicable and helpful. Every inclination of the human heart was always wicked all the time. And so once again, God could have just stopped it right there. He could have obliterated the earth, deleted it, and just lived on happily in his Trinitarian existence, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But because of his great love for us, because of his great love for people, he chose Noah and his family and he called them out of where they were in order to save for himself a remnant. Now the rest of the earth was destroyed by a flood because of their wickedness of heart. But God in his grace and mercy saved Noah and he made a covenant with Noah. Remember, The covenant that he made with Noah was through Noah. He was the human mediator. The blessings of the covenant were that God would not destroy the earth again. The internal sign as always was faith and the external sign of that covenant was a rainbow in the sky. Now, Noah and his family once again began to populate the earth. And at that point, God decides to choose for himself a human being to call Abram out of where he was at in order to start a family. And not just a family, just to have a family. Rather, God says to Abram, I will bless you so that you will bless all nations of the earth. Do you hear it? I will bless you so that you will bless all nations of the earth. And so God makes a covenant with Abram, whose name eventually would be Abraham. His covenant is this, I will provide for you a land, and I will provide for you a son, an heir, in order to inherit that land. The internal sign of that covenant, as always, was faith. The external sign was circumcision. I don't know why Noah got a rainbow and Abraham got circumcision. I know, rough for Abraham, but let's keep going. So Abraham eventually has this son that God promised him. His name was Laughter, Isaac, but translated, Laughter. And of course you would name a kid laughter if you had a child when you were in your 90s because all you can do is laugh. That was the son of promise that God gave to Abraham. Abraham had Isaac. Isaac had Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons that would eventually become the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, here's the deal. Those sons sold one of their brothers, Joseph, into slavery in Egypt because he was their father's favorite and they were jealous. And they told their father a a wild animal has come and eaten Joseph and killed Joseph. But Joseph sold into slavery, eventually came to the nation of Egypt and rose to prominence in Egypt. So there becomes a time where there's famine all across the land and Jacob's sons have to go into Egypt to ask Egypt for help. They were running out of food. Well, they went before the man who was the right hand of power, right hand of Pharaoh in Egypt, their brother Joseph. Now, it had been years. They didn't recognize him. And so eventually after a series of conversations, Joseph reveals himself to them and says, you meant this for evil, but God meant it for good so that I could help when this day came. And Joseph does, he forgives his brothers and helps his brothers and that nation of Israel, those 12 tribes, those sons of Jacob, began to grow and grow and grow. Now, Joseph died. And the subsequent Pharaohs forgot all that Joseph had done and all the nation of Israel had done for the nation of Egypt. And so rather than partnering with and being empowered by Egypt and Israel working together as they had done before, Egypt began to enslave the nation of Israel. And for 430 years, those 12 tribes that had come from Jacob, those tribes of Israel, were enslaved in Egypt. And the nation of Israel called out for a redeemer over and over and over again. 430 years later, God finally provided that redeemer in a man named Moses. He called Moses and said, go tell Pharaoh, let my people go. And Moses does what God tells him to do. Pharaoh's short answer, no, So it took some convincing in the form of plagues, and eventually Pharaoh released the nation of Israel, and they begin to journey from Egypt south and east toward the land that God had promised Abraham. Aren't you glad that God doesn't forget what he promised? It had been years and years and generations and generations since God had made that covenant with Abraham and promised him a land that his descendants would inhabit. But God doesn't forget. So when he redeemed his people from Egypt, he sent them south and east toward that land. On the way there, they stop at a place called Sinai, and God gives Moses the covenant the tablets of stone. And through Moses now, God makes the Mosaic covenant. Moses was the human mediator. The blessings of the covenant were that these people would be a civilization. Now that they had a law, they were a group of people, that they, they experienced God's promise and presence with them through the tabernacle. Remember that tent-like structure that traveled with them all throughout the wilderness as they journeyed toward the promised land. In uh, this moment is when God establishes the Sabbath, this day of rest that points forward even to the spiritual rest that Jesus offers us. And it's through uh, these generations and these years that we begin to see kind of the first shape of these three offices of Jesus. One is Jesus' prophet. Remember in the Old Testament, God sent prophets to speak his truth to the people. Jesus was the embodiment, the incarnation of God's truth. He sent priests, established a priesthood to be a mediator on behalf of the people to God. And Jesus is our final and complete mediator. And we don't need any mediators anymore. He's our great high priest, as the book of Hebrews says. And now we come to this third and final office of Jesus today. And this office we see begins to be shaped once Israel finally inhabits that promised land. Because Moses, as he led the people toward the promised land, sinned. And by his sin, he forfeited the ability to lead God's people into this land of promise. And so his successor, Joshua, did so. Once they got into the land of promise, these 12 tribes continued to grow. They had their own land. They had their own civilization. They had their own people group and family that came from these 12 tribes but they didn't have a king like other nations did in that they didn't have a human king. So they came to God and said, God, we want a king like other nations. We want a human king. And God said, you have a king. It's me. I'm your king. I've established my kingly authority over you for thousands of years. And they said, no, 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 we we want a human king. So they chose one for themselves. Bad idea. And they didn't choose him for his competency or for his character. They chose him because he was good looking and tall. His name was Saul. And they experienced the negative consequences of rejecting God's kingly authority and his kingdom and giving it to Saul. Well, eventually God intervenes once again, just as he had done generations before and time and time and time and time again. He intervenes and he chooses for himself a king. And the king that he chose was not tall. In fact, he was the runt of the litter. He was the least of all his brothers. He was a shepherd on a hill. And it's at this point in the nation of Israel that God makes one more covenant. And it's his covenant with David. The covenant shows up in 2 Samuel chapter 7. God speaks through the prophet Nathan. And as I read the covenant in the story, you're going to hear hints and shadows of things that we've talked about. God does that on purpose. And then you're going to hear God make a final covenant, the Davidic covenant. Let's listen. 2 Samuel chapter 7 verse 4. Reads this way. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord. Would you build me a house to dwell in? I've not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I've been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. We just talked about that. It's the tabernacle. Verse 7. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges in Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Verse 8. Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name like the name of the great ones on the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly, from the time I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. There's a shadow of the Sabbath. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house." When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words, in accordance with this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Now, Let's review these five aspects of the Davidic covenant. First, the covenant mediator is David. God makes his covenant with his people through David. Second is God promises David two things. He promises him an offspring. Did you hear that word? An heir, someone that came from his line. And he promises him a kingdom. Those two things. The internal sign of the covenant, as always, is faith. He's saying, David, trust me. The external sign of the covenant with David is a throne. And the conditions of the covenant with David, David, here's what you have to do in order for me to do this, are none at all. God simply says, this is what I'm going to do. And it's God's covenant with David. Now, It's at this point that we have to talk about a little bit of a complicated theological issue called dual or double fulfillment. Because in some ways, David's son Solomon was the fulfillment of this covenant. Solomon was David's direct offspring. Solomon was given opportunity to build the temple. God simply says, David was a man of war. I don't want a man of war to build the temple. So Solomon builds this temple, this Permanent dwelling place for God. And again, he was David's offspring, David's heir, and set on the throne of David. However, as we begin to read the New Testament, the rest of the Old Testament begins to unfold and the New Testament comes along, what we see is that Jesus is kind of this second wave of fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. And the Davidic covenant itself actually points to something uh, more than Solomon or beyond Solomon. And, and, and the reason I say that is because within the context of the Davidic covenant, uh, 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 through 17, the word forever is repeated three times. I will establish the throne of his kingdom Forever, Your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever. Your throne shall be established forever. Solomon did not last forever. So while the Davidic covenant was fulfilled in part with David's son Solomon, the Davidic covenant always pointed to a future king. It's a little bit like this. if If you're driving toward a mountain, like let's say Mount Kilimanjaro, From afar, you may see kind of the shadow or the silhouette of the mountain on the horizon. You would see maybe a snow-capped peak. You would understand that that's a huge mountain. But as you approach the mountain and get closer and closer and closer, you see that the mountain has vegetation. You see that it has animals. You see that it's got far more detail than you ever imagined. This is the case with the Davidic covenant. We see this big picture of a king that would be established forever through the line of David. But as history unfolds, we get closer and closer and we see there are far more details and much more sophistication to the Davidic covenant than we ever imagined. In fact, Jesus... Would ultimately be kind of the second wave, the ultimate fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. Now, as the people of Israel began to long for this second king, because they knew. There was another one coming, there was a Messiah. All of the Old Testament just hurdles towards this moment in history where God would provide this final redeemer. They began to struggle with the kingdom they longed for and the kingdom they actually had. Because they would look back, the nation of Israel, to these days of David and long for the time that the nation of Israel was unified. The nation of Israel was free. The nation of Israel was prospering on the earth. And by the time Jesus rolled around, the nation of Israel was not unified. In fact, they were divided. The 10 tribes in the north and the two tribes in the south had been split. The original uh, temple that Solomon had built had been destroyed. There were people all over the place. They were not Free! In fact, they were still oppressed by a Roman government. Uh, The code word even among Jews for Rome was Babylon. They looked back to the Babylonian exile and said, we are oppressed and we are enslaved in the exact same way that we were before. And they longed for this kingdom they once had, and they longed for that kingdom to be reinstated and re-inaugurated And at the same time struggling with this is not how we are supposed to live. And so when Jesus comes on the scene and the gospel writers begin to talk about him, from the very first verses, they make sure that you and I know that Jesus is this king. The longed for king from the line of David, the one that would sit on the throne. Matthew chapter one, verse one. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. That's how Matthew begins his biography of Jesus. Luke makes a point of telling us That Joseph went up from Galilee when Caesar issued this decree that a census would be taken from the town of Nazareth to Judea, the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. All over the New Testament, it's replete with examples that Jesus is the son of David. He's in the lineage of David. He is qualified to occupy the Davidic throne. Not only that, but Christ himself begins to talk about a new and different kingdom, that he is going to bring this kingdom once again on earth. It's even represented in a simple word count in the New Testament. The word sin is referenced 127 times in the gospel. Grace, 123. Forgive, 32. The word Messiah, just twice in all four gospels. But the word kingdom, 162 times more than any of those other popular words that we would use in church. In fact, when Jesus announces his arrival on the scene, the beginning of his ministry, Mark chapter one, verse 14 says this, now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, here it is, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. This is Jesus' mission to establish a kingdom. The New Testament, both the gospels and the epistles, the rest of the New Testament is replete with examples that Jesus came to establish a kingdom. So, So let's say it this way. Did Jesus come to teach? Sure he did. Did Jesus come to show us the way to God? Absolutely. Did Jesus come to die for our sins and rise again on the third day. Yes, but all of those things were done so that he could demonstrate and establish his kingdom. And we don't talk about kingdoms much these days, do we? But let us be reminded, a kingdom is a place where a king is in control. The king has all the authority The king has all the power. The king is totally sovereign. Now, we might look around and say, that's not the case. God is not in complete control of the world around us. The reality is he is in control. He's just not flexing his sovereignty muscles. (laughs) Yes, he has control over COVID. He's just not flexed his muscles quite yet. Yes, he has control over uh, the nations of the world and how they bicker and argue and war. He's just not flexing his sovereignty muscles quite yet. But there will be a day, the Bible promises, where every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, that he will come back, the kingdom that he inaugurated 2,000 years ago, the kingdom that he demonstrated that he had the authority to bring in his death resurrection he will consummate and bring to complete fruition one day when every knee bows and every tongue confesses in the meantime jesus kingdom is invisible but it's no less real are you with me in that his his kingdom is invisible but it's no less real i I went to uh, iraq in October and visited a place called Kurdistan. The Kurds are one of the largest people groups in the world that don't have their own physical land. They have their own justice system, they have their own police force, they have all kinds of different stuff. It's actually safe to visit uh, Kurdish Iraq uh, because of the Kurdish people. Now on a map, they'd be invisible. There, There isn't a border that says this is Kurdistan, but it doesn't mean they're any less real. In a very similar way, that's the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is invisible, but it's no less real. This is why Jesus says to Pilate in John chapter 18, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. See, his kingdom is invisible, but it's no less real. And what they experienced then is what we experience now, and it's what N.T. Wright calls the clash of kingdoms in his book, How God Became King. Because the values of the real kingdom, the true kingdom that belongs to the true king, Jesus, are in direct opposition to the kingdom of Caesar. And those values would be in direct opposition to the kingdoms that we live in today. And please understand, I'm not talking about the kingdom of Ontario. I'm not talking about the kingdom of Canada. I'm not talking about the kingdom of Hollywood or the kingdom of the liberal media because we as Christians have fooled ourselves into believing that we're living for the kingdom, but really we're fighting for cultural privilege. I want to say that again because I think it's critical. We have fooled ourselves into believing that we're living for the king and really we're fighting for cultural privilege. But that's not kingdom living. Kingdom living is humility, service, tenderness, gentleness, deference, others first. This is why Jesus says to James and John when they come to him and say, we want to sit at your right and left hand. He says, in my kingdom, those who are last will be first. And this is the true kingdom. It's the kingdom that will be established and in complete control one day, although now God has chosen not to flex his sovereignty muscle quite yet. And the charge for us is simply this. In the meantime, to acknowledge Jesus as king, the rightful heir to the throne of David, the one who came in David's lineage to fulfill that Davidic covenant, to be the fulfillment of God's promises to his people long ago, not just that he would establish a family, though he did, not that he would save a remnant, though he did, not just that he would be with his people, though he did, but that he would establish a kingdom, not just a kingdom, but an upside-down kingdom that adopts a completely different set of values than the kingdoms of this world. Jesus, because of his death, and resurrection is the king. I took the opportunity um, just yesterday to jot down some places in my life and some things where maybe Jesus isn't king right this second. And I need to remember that Jesus is in control and that it's upon me incumbent upon me to adopt his kingdom values in each and every aspect of my life. Let me just remind you where Jesus is king. He's king over your finances. He's king over your hobbies. He's king of your affections. He's king of your time. He has the authority. He's in control of your time. Jesus is king of your family. Jesus is king of your attitude. As a member of the kingdom of God, you don't get to decide what you think is an appropriate attitude or posture in a particular situation because Jesus is king. He gets to decide, and then you and I, as members of his kingdom, simply adopt the attitude that the king prescribes. Jesus is king of your future. Jesus is king of your marriage. Jesus is king of your vocation. Jesus is king of all. And this really is our hope for the future, believers in Christ and members of his kingdom that one day these kingdom values that we adopt will permeate all that we see and all that we can't see when Jesus brings His kingdom in totality and consummates His kingdom and heaven and earth join together and Jesus rules and reigns over all. That day when every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is our hope for the future And in the here and now, we live out kingdom values in our world. Now, it's the last thing that I want to do, and it's this. For those of you who have never accepted God's invitation of grace, this is his invitation, to acknowledge that he is king, to bow your knee now, and to confess his authority and sovereignty and his rightful place on the throne of your life. Now, and the great news is we have a king that is benevolent beyond our comprehension. A king that is gracious, a king that knows our best and has our best in mind. A king that deserves our whole life. We don't have a broken monarchy because we don't have a broken monarch. (laughs) We have a glorious and perfect and benevolent and gracious king. But he's king. So responding to the message of the gospel, responding to the good news about Jesus is simply this. Jesus, I acknowledge that you're king and I've not always treated you as such. In fact, I've rebelled. And I know that you went to the cross to pay for my sin, that you rose from the dead and demonstrated that you are indeed the king and one day you're gonna come back. So I confess my need for you, I ask for your forgiveness, and I acknowledge you as king over my life and I endeavor to live that way. For some of you, I'm just believing God right now that he's drawing you near to himself. Maybe he's just done that today, maybe he's done that over the course of the series and you've been wondering how to respond, this is how you respond, by acknowledging that Jesus is King. If that's you today, I would invite you to pray a simple prayer, and that prayer is just simply acknowledging your need for God, acknowledging that He went to the cross on your behalf and asking for your forgiveness, and acknowledging that He is King. There's no special words. It's not like a magic spell. You just talk to God in your own heart, and He hears you. And if you would like for us to follow up with you, we we would love to. uh, Just click that link there in the chat, and we'll help you connect with someone to walk with Jesus as King in your life. Let's pray. God, I am grateful that you have given to us both the Old and New Testament so that we could see you in all of your glory. The reality is, Jesus, that we have simply scratched the surface even in this 10, 12-week series or whatever. We've just scratched the surface of who you truly are. God, give us a greater picture so that we would see you in your glory, and so that we would live every day as subjects to you, the King of kings. In Christ's name, amen.